0: Hello there, and welcome to episode one of Finergo's podcast series, which aims to get under the hood of the key regulatory and technology issues facing financial institutions today. I'm Dara Tracy, Strategy Manager at Finergo, and I'm joined by Adele Brophy, Director of Global Regulations. Hi, Adele.
1: Hi, Dara. Lovely to join you.
0: Thanks for being here. Uh, Today's podcast is all about COP27. Now that the conference has wrapped up in Egypt, it's a good opportunity to reflect on some of the positives, like progress on loss and damage, and some of the negatives in topics like emissions reduction. We'll be asking Adele, as our in house ESG regulatory expert, what the outcomes of COP27 mean for financial institutions and how it will inform ESG regulation down the tracks. We'll also discuss the key decisions from COP27, the impact that will have on industry, and what role finance will play. So, to get started, Adele, perhaps we can hear a bit about your background in the green transition. How did you come to be involved in this area?
1: Okay. So thanks a and Tara. Um, I suppose just to give you a little introduction to myself, I've over 20 years in financial services experience, focusing on risk, governance and compliance demonstrated across all of the three lines of defence. And I've an extensive history in terms of leading out regulatory transformation and change with a particular focus on client lifecycle management and fintech, regtech. And obviously of late, the ESG mandate has actually come into the agenda and it sits within my responsibility.
0: That's great, Adele. Thank you very much for that. Uh, So let's get stuck into this. What were your expectations going into COP27?
1: Oh, well, there was multiple. But uh, let me just give you a few and I'll pull out a few highlights. So... I think, firstly, the pivot from negotiations to implementation, there's a lot of talk, etc. So with regards to, um, first and foremost, the principle of nationally determined contributions or NDCs, as they're, they're more commonly called, and rules under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So what is an NDC? It's a climate action plan to cut emissions and adapt climate impacts. Each party to the Paris Agreement is required to establish an NDC and update it every five years. Then with regards to Article 6, it governs market and non-market cooperative mechanisms to facilitate the transfer of carbon credits between countries in meeting countries' NDCs. So Article 6 rulebook was finalised at COP26 following negotiations co-facilitated at the time by Singapore and Norway. Further clarification and rules governing the carbon markets was required in order for Article 6 to be implemented and become operational. So what actually happened at COP27? Japan's environmental minister launched the Paris Agreement um, Article 6 Implementation Partnership on the 16th of November, which attracted pledges from 40 countries and 23 institutions in its release. The aim of this initiative is to advance the implementation of high-integrity carbon markets through the coordination of international efforts around the world and will serve as an information platform for Article 6 implementation and provide the support required to pilot Article 6 initiatives. Secondly, I think one of the other things that I call out is, and you mentioned it earlier on, the importance of coupling climate crisis and biodiversity crisis. For years, these have been treated as separate issues. It was called out at COP27 that there was no viable route to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius without urgently protecting and restoring nature. However, unfortunately, little was done apart from the same rhetoric and failed to mention next month's COP15 Biodiversity Summit in Montreal, where countries will gather again to seek a global deal to protect the world's declining wildlife and degraded ecosystems. Next, we look at the energy crisis, and this is on the top of everybody's lips. So pushing up inflation and slowing economic growth. There's been a a complete shift in the energy landscape over the last couple of years. We have seen the international community turning against fossil fuels as part of the Glasgow Climate Pact last year. For the first time in history, we saw 197 countries agree to the phase down use of coal. And this year with the Ukraine invasion, we have seen how fragile nature and natural gas, oil, supplies, pushing the industry into turmoil. However, pushing renewables into the spotlight is now on the top of everybody's lips again. So unfortunately, at COP27, big fossil fuel producers stayed away and the alliance called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, BOGA as it's called, who are committed to banning new domestic oil and gas drilling. And only Portugal was upgraded to a core member and Chile, Fiji and Washington State in the United States joined that 12-month-old alliance. Then we look at climate finance and repatriations. As defined by the United Nations framework, climate finance is finance that aims to reducing emissions and enhancing sinks of greenhouse gases. And it aims at reducing the vulnerability of and maintaining and increase the resilience of human and ecological systems to negative climate change impacts. And repatriations being the, the action of making amends for wrong, what, has, what it has done by providing payment or other assistance to those who have been wronged, balancing the scale as we, as we, we, we like to, to term it. The anticipation is that COP27 would have addressed these issues and look at more funding for climate adaptive measures to build developing nations resilience. And then lastly, my expectation certainly would be looking to continue the stellar work on implementing the 2015 Paris Agreement with the aim of limiting the global temperature increase to well below 2.0 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and to pursue efforts to limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius following on from COP26. The outcome from SHARM was that climate change should be mitigated by limiting global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius and countries should work hard to keep their 1.5 degree target alive through bold and immediate actions cop 27 should should have witnessed the implementation of the glasgow pact calling to review the ambition of the ndcs and create a work program for the ambition on mitigation so i hope that gives you a sense in terms of certainly what what i was looking for in terms of going into cop you know back in the beginning of november
0: that's great Adele. thanks and You know, with so many key topics and and, and such a variety of players at COP27, what were some of the most striking things you heard that really stood out?
1: Oh, well, definitely the massive success story was the agreement to set up a loss and damage fund. And I know you called that out at your intro. And this is to support poorer countries been ravaged by climate impacts. This was a monumental agreement and it has taken decades of resistance from wealthier nations who are the main culprits and who are responsible in contributing to the bulk of the world's emissions. At COP27 it was agreed for the first time to set up a fund to provide payouts to developing countries that suffer loss and damage from climate driven um, events such as storms, floods, droughts and wildfires. The deal was historic for developing um, and poorer nations who have championed to this cause for over 30 years, believe it or not, and have been calling for financial assistance and who have been the most affected by climate disaster. I think one of the key things to call out is that these poor countries suffer and are the most affected by extreme climate impacts, despite their small carbon footprints. Wealthy economies, in particular the US, has long opposed the loss and damage fund, fearing legal liability pertaining to high levels of greenhouse gas emissions. However, it was really, really great to see the catalyst for change in wealthier nations, revising their stances in addressing the matter of climate justice. So the Egyptian foreign minister, who obviously presided over COP27 at at the, 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 the summit, said, we rose to the occasion, we worked around the clock, day and night, but united in working for one gain, one higher purpose, one common goal, and in the end, we delivered. But I think the standout and most poignant comment for me was from the climate change minister of Pakistan, who was a real champion and lobbyist for developing countries at COP27, whereby her country suffered severely due to the floods in September. So it's so recent. And a third of Pakistan was underwater. And she commented on the loss and damage deal. And she said, it's not about accepting uh, charity. This is a down payment on investment in our futures and in climate justice. So the final agreement saw the formation of a transitional committee with representatives from 24 countries. This is a committee that is mandated with the establishment of how this fund should work, where the money should come from. This committee has been tasked to present their recommendations at COP28 in the UAE in 2023. So we wait with bated breath to see how they develop over the next year and get that fund up and running.
0: Okay. And you know, loss and damage will include setting up new funds, making transfers from wealthier nations to poorer nations. So finance is going to be key to this. What role do you see banks playing in delivering on the COP27 agenda? And can banks have a meaningful impact on their approach to decarbonisation?
1: Yeah. So um, I'd say at COP27, um, there was a call on you know, key shareholders of multilateral development banks, MDP, and other financial institutions to really overhaul and reform their practices and priorities to ensure simplified access along with a call to define a new vision so that they're fit for purpose of adequately addressing the global climate emergency. I'd say furthermore it's also called for financial bodies to take into account debt burdens which is a reflection of how climate finance is supposed to work. Also, with regards to finance, it was noted that the sharp rise in interest rates this year is, is, is becoming a drag on climate policies, especially in developing nations. I think, as mentioned before, I called out that how climate finance is not working for these poorer, smaller and vulnerable countries and how the fund lent by MDBs to help countries recover from extreme weather impacts, and I would have called them out before, and additional ones, heat waves and droughts and hurricanes, etc., comes on vastly unequal terms for these nations. So one of the, I suppose, the key people that I follow and I followed for a couple of years is Mark Carney. He's the formal central banker who helped launch the financial alliance for net zero at COP26. Carney believes that the world needs one trillion a year of projects like renewable projects to quadruple the ratio of renewable energy to non-renewable investments um, going forward. And he said that this renewed focus on climate finance has a massive impact on financial institutions and will have a triple down effect within the sector who are now under greater pressure and scrutiny to challenging funding towards green finance. Hence, having a meaningful impact in their approach to decargeting decarbonisation and how private capital is directed will be essential in the transition to net zero.
0: Okay. And then taking a look at ESG a bit more generally, how is customer demand driving the creation of new products in ESG? What is the role of banks in financing the green transition? And what do you see as the biggest barriers to a sustainable financial system?
1: So key components within this mix are social and environmental considerations and brand purpose, with consumers now expecting businesses to commit to improved levels of sustainability as an absolute prerequisite. And I think this is permeated across the provision of financial services, where customers are expecting their financial institutions to be seen as green banks and offering green product offerings within the mix. So if we look at institutional investment decisions They're now being made with these considerations front of mind, with over three quarters of um, integrated ESG data into their thinking in terms of their investment strategy, elevating the role and significance of ESG reporting in consumer products even further. Secondly, I think financial institutions play a critical role in allocating finances for the functioning of the economy. And as a result, they can contribute to channeling private investment towards the transition to a climate neutral, climate resilience, resource efficient and fair economy. I think financial institutions act as a catalyst for greening the financial system, which is necessary to finance the transition to a low-carbon economy. And it's it's, it's critical and key to call out here that there are now 300 financial institutions who signed up to the principles of responsible banking. So what was once was the exception is now the norm. And in Finergo, as a third-party service provider, we're aligned in supporting our clients meeting this mandate. And then I suppose thirdly and lastly, despite the growing evidence shown in financial materiality of ESG issues in portfolio value, the investment consultants advising how trillions of dollars are invested invested, are failing to consider ESG issues in the investment practice. So ESG factors must now be a core part of investment advice, and that's critical, even more so because it's a core part of the investor's fiduciary duties. And in addition, I I think one of the key call-outs to finish up is the short-termism and deeply entrenched corporate behaviour is one of the key challenges in creating a sustainable financial system.
0: Great, Adelia. Thank you very much. Moving more towards the regulatory side, what was the general feeling on site about the current state of ESG regulation and what are some of the changes coming down the tracks?
1: Well, I suppose if we look back to last year and look at COP26, I mean, we saw the advent um, of, you know, the focus around regulation and, you know, looking at, at mandatory reporting, mandatory guidelines, mandatory disclosures with the setup of the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board. And the intention is for the ISSB to deliver a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability rate related disclosure standards that provide investors and other capital market participants with information information. information about companies, sustainably related risks and opportunities to help them make informed decisions. ISSB has been working over the last year to agree on the the global disclosure norms. And at COP27, um, the chair, so Faber, said he was hopeful for reaching in the coming weeks a big milestone towards aligning the EU's corporate disclosures with his board's global norms. I think it's key to call out, however, though, even though the ISSB will work to converge with the EU rules, there appears to be some divergence over what should be accounted when assessing a company. The ISSB is in discussion also with the EU Commission and the EU Reporting Lab, so it's EFRAG, to agree when is practical to implement the framework. One of the other call-outs is that Faber also announced the introduction of the ISSB's new partnership framework with more than 20 organisations, including CDP, the Principles for Responsible Investment, the PRI, and the Big Four, with the aim to help firms prepare and implement their disclosure under the IFRS Sustainability Disclosure Standards. The standards are due to be implemented in 2023, so not long, just around the corner. And in their most recent update on the 21st of October, it stated that companies will be required to disclose Scope 1, 2 and 3 in gas emissions. But it will potentially have more time to report on Scope 3 disclosures and also be supplied with relief provisions to help out work out these disclosures. As we near closure towards finalising the standards, we see more and more jurisdictions coming on board and moving away from voluntary disclosure and looking to ratify new legislation and putting it into place in making disclosure requirements mandatory. Finally, I think it's also worth calling out here that aside from COP, the United Nations Environmental Programme Finance Initiative, the UNFI and the Generation Foundation, publish a number of countries specific roadmaps to make recommendations to national policymakers, regulators and other stakeholders on how to ensure institutional investors understand their fiduciary duties and require them to consider material ESG issues in their investment process and decision-making. And of late, these include jurisdictions such as Japan, China, South Africa, and Germany. And this is followed up from a really successful implementation of the UK, US, Brazil, Canada, and Australia roadmaps.
0: And how will, if it does at all, COP27 inform ESG regulation in the future?
1: So, Every country in the world has adopted the goals of the Paris Agreement. I mean, we know that. However, I'd say sadly, global greenhouse gas emissions have been on the rise since the agreement was reached in 2005. So seven years on, have we actually made any progress? There's been very heavy criticism from many corners that we aren't seeing the necessary shift in mainstream investment practice to respond to the climate crisis. The Investor Group on Climate Change, the IGCC experts wrote, Climate change will be a crucial factor in beneficiaries' long-term financial returns. And the highest net income benefit is limiting climate change damages from warming above 1.5 degrees Celsius and there's a clear economic to benefit to the benefit in acting now. The industry shift is changing how financial institutions move towards sustainability and must be mandated through robust disclosure requirements and practices and the criterion in delivering past success, successes will change through these disclosures. There's greater scrutiny and transparency on disclosure requirements and there's nowhere to hide now. And where greenwashing practice may have been adopted in the past, it's clear that traceability and audited, auditable reporting will hopefully redirect investment efforts and lock, unlock the trillions needed to realise the benefits of a sustainable financial system. I think the path to net zero will set the mandate for the financial sector for the next decade and well beyond. And this will be achieved through increased regulatory mandates in order to manage climate risk. And I think really to sum it all up, what gets measured gets done.
0: Thank you for all that information. Really interesting. Like I suppose that really just emphasizes how um, you know important COP27 is for finance, for banks, for everybody really, I suppose. So to summarize, what will be the three main takeaways you have from COP27?
1: I was to summarize that I'd say, you know, the three main takeaways was obviously the big success story, the loss and damage fund, yeah. and how that's actually going to affect financial institutions, because that's also going to have a ripple effect down to, you know, broader financial market participants so i think that's that's key and to watch actually what what develops and happens within that space second i think we need to you know to be very cognizant of what's happening within the space in terms of the whole energy dilemma and the whole the whole debate around fossil fuel etc because obviously that, that does feed into you know taxonomies etc and will have an impact in terms of looking to you know scope two and scope three emissions and obviously that linear and that whole, you know, loop in terms of the entire supply chain. And thirdly, I think you know, which is just you know, we're waiting with bated breath, um, you know, looking to the ISSB to firm up their recommendations. Now they're going out to put pu- public consultation again early in 2023, so they're seeking a huge amount of industry feedback. And um, but I think we need to watch that cl- space really closely as to what those requirements will be mandated, and you know, looking at where jurisdictions will adapt that, those recommendations and look at ratifying, you know, those recommendations into legislation. So I think those three areas are really, really key in terms of, you know, under the umbrella of, you know, the financial services, um, inclusion, um, remit, etc. when it comes to climate.
0: Thank you, Del. And if you would like to talk in more detail about the topics discussed today and how they impact financial institutions, please do get in touch on info at and if you want to find out more about Fenergo's ESG offering, visit Fenergo.com forward slash ESG. You can access our future episodes in our podcast series via the resources page on Fenergo's website or major platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much.